Morning, everybody. Welcome, and uh, we're glad to be together. I got to stop up and see the men yesterday, and they're having a great time, and they're hearing a great word, uh, some great challenges. And um, so we want to continue to be challenged. Um, I know I am as I go through Malachi, and uh, several of you have shared that uh, I'm not going down alone. Um, we're being challenged. And I think this morning um, that will continue. So if you'd open to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through 16, I'll read it. And um, we certainly need to pray after that. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one of you has done who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you that your word cuts through the fog. When it comes to the issue of marriage, certainly in America, it's become quite foggy. But I thank you you've spoken. I thank you you haven't stuttered. And I thank you you don't submit or bow to the culture, to society. But that your plan is perfect. It always has. And it always will. But I realize, Father, in this fallen world, the verses this morning are going to be hard. For sure they'll challenge, but I think for some, it's going to be the matter, Lord, of being able to focus on the moment, not from the chains of yesterday. So teach us, change us, so that in all things you'd be praised. Thank you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. As I went through this passage a lot, I was kind of reminded myself, and I remind you as well, of the overall theme of Malachi, and that is that you and I would live with passion, that there would be a passionate spirituality in our life, and this is just one element of that. And these verses, though, I realize are going to be hard for some, and I, I just want to encourage you and remind you, we can't change yesterday. We can't. We wish we could at times. But what we can do is start today to do what God wants. And so that's my challenge to you as we go through that. 
is to think of today. What, what, what does God want me to start doing today? I also was reminded of God's Word and that this Bible, His Word, is not a dead book. It's not a book of dull thoughts. But His Word is a lamp and, and it's a light. In Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, you don't need to turn there if you don't want. I just wanted to read it because of the power of this book that we study every Sunday. And one reason we study it. For the Word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must have to give an account. You see, God's Word is sharp and it does two things. It pierces. In other words, it cuts through excuses. It cuts through rationalizations, through the traditions, and through fog. And it judges. God's Word is a critic of our thoughts. It's a critic of our motives and our attitudes. And there's something about God's Word that regardless of culture, age, sex, position, it brings change. It's universal in scope. No creatures are hidden from it. It's limitless in exposure. All things are laid bare, not some things, all things, before the mirror and the searching light of God's Word. There are no tests or x-rays a doctor can give you to examine the condition of your heart spiritually. Only God's Word, through the ministry of God's Spirit, can x-ray the motives, the beliefs, and the attitudes of your heart. That's why we preach this Word. That's why we believe it. Because it is the one thing that God uses to change and to really help us deal with the issues of our heart. And only God is exposed to all that through his word we may examine what is inside. And I pray that is the case this morning. Now as we looked at Malachi and we begin these verses. The first three verses we looked at, verse 10 through verse 13 of Malachi 2. Really talks about this idea of correction for compromise. You see, the stethoscope of God's word had been placed on the Israelites. And God detected something. Compromise. Compromise in the area of his standards. Compromise in the area of his calling, of relationships. And this passage provides a serious warning to you and I. As Christians, certainly a serious call for leaders, for dads, for communities, for the church. Because Christ is looking for godly examples. And you and I cannot be godly if we compromise. There must be a commitment to God's way. Now, if you're like me, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy who picks up words that are repeated. They grab my attention. There's a word treacherously used five times in just these few verses. And the word treacherously is an important word. It means faithless. It means deceit. They dealt treacherously. They were faithless to God and his covenant. They even deceived themselves in the midst of it. And God calls them on the carpet and said, you've dealt treacherously. And he gives two examples of their faithlessness. One is they were marrying the daughters of foreign gods. And two, they were breaking faith with the covenant of marriage to their wife. And both violations were of God's holy law 
And both violations profaned the holiness of God. Now, a couple observations about compromise that we probably all can relate to, but I think the Bible points to this as well, is that compromise never occurs quickly. You probably know this from experience. It's almost like a process of erosion. It's a little at a time. It never occurs quickly. And it always lowers standards step by step. And what yesterday we couldn't tolerate, what yesterday we were convicted of, all of a sudden a little bit, we begin to move the line a little bit at a time. Compromise is seldom offensive because it starts beneath the surface. And it's often a step before total disobedience. God says and wants to give correction here to compromise. But I ask the question, why is there so much compromise, especially today it seems like? Why so much? Why so little commitment? In our permissive, irresponsible escapism mentality, commitment stands almost as a dirty word. Why is it so rare? Why is conviction seem like it's gone? Well, I think in our culture there's several reasons. One, public opinion. We're pretty concerned about the uh, political correctedness police. And so we're always moving the line just so we, well, fit in with the majority. There's accommodating theology. In other words, fitting the Bible into our lifestyle, not fitting our lifestyle into biblical truth. Accommodating theology. Delayed consequences. I don't know, it seems like people get away with it. There's delayed consequences to God's judgment. It appears. So we compromise. There's conviction. I appreciate the the living Bible, the paraphrase of Ecclesiastes 8.11, which says, because God does not punish sinners instantly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. I think that's kind of how we think. Look at that person. They're getting away with it. I mean, they're doing whatever they want. And they're stealing, they're robbing, they're doing this and that and that. And it looks like they're getting away with it. And especially our kids look at that and say, must be okay to go that way. God hasn't zapped them. They're not getting caught. That's not a new attitude. That's not a new thought. And I think there's another reason. There's such a lack of commitment and so much compromise. I'd say Christian approval begins to foster a shallow view of commitment. We begin to approve things in the realm of Christianity, probably because of number one, again, political correctness, and because that's what society does, and we begin to approve of things we really shouldn't. We begin to soften our stance on things that we should maybe hold firm to, because the scriptures hold firm to them. And this is never more true when we hit this issue of marriage in divorce. Because this text narrows this focus to marriage, to divorce. Exodus 34, 12 through 16, Ezra 9, 1 through 4, and Nehemiah 23 through 25 all speak of this compromise of beginning to marry daughters of foreign gods. I'm just going to use one of the examples, read Ezra 9, 1 through 4. Ezra is kind of about this time Malachi was written. He's come back with those who were captive to the Babylonians. He comes back and look at what he says to the people. 
Again, Ezra 9, verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in their unfaithfulness. And look at, look at Ezra's response. When I heard about this matter, I tore my gar- garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard. And that day when you pulled uh, your beard out, it was a sign of, uh, of, of basically disrespect. You were aghast at what you saw. And that's what Ezra does. And I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled, once again, until the evening offering. What Ezra's saying is this is so horrible, what's going on? They're, they're marrying daughters of foreign gods, and if that's not bad enough, they're, they're giving daughters to their sons. Now they're corrupting the offspring. This is detestable in God's sight. And God's anger is against his people marrying those who you really could say, application-wise, are unbelievers. Because if you do not worship the true God, you're worshiping something else. And this is a word for those who are not married. Teenagers, you thought you'd get away with a message this morning because it's on marriage. You're like, well, buckle up, because this speaks against marrying unbelievers. And you know as well as I do you, you, you're not going to marry somebody you haven't dated, so I want to back up the truck and say you should never date an unbeliever. I think certainly to date an unbeliever, I, and I'm sure your parents are going to be strong enough to steer you in a different direction, don't fight it. They're being very good parents. God help you if your parents don't care enough to steer you towards dating believers. We have a rule in our house, and that is our children really can't date alone. You can only be with a Christian in a group. It's safer, and you get to know the real person. You shouldn't date an unbeliever. Matter of fact, I would go even further to say, and if you say, why, that seems kind of harsh. Let's put it this way. You're entering into your life as a Christian, hopefully, a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have a treasure. That's Jesus. He's your treasure. He's your all in all. It's who you sing about on Sunday morning. It's who you long to please during the week. Jesus is your treasure. And you have a blueprint for your life. Here it is, God's word. You're going to follow God's word because it's laying out principles that will protect you. And so you look at the word and you take it seriously. And you say, this is my blueprint. I'm going to build my life on this. And then when things get tough in your life in the day-to-day, you bow your head and say, God, give me the strength to handle whatever comes my way. So you have a treasure and you have a blueprint and you have a strength. Why in God's name would you enter into a relationship with someone who shares none of those things in common? They have not, Jesus is their treasure. They're not playing off the same blueprint. And when things get rough, they don't turn to Almighty God. And here you are, you don't share a common treasure, you don't share a common blueprint, and you don't share a common strength. Do you see why? God wants to protect you. And what they were doing is they were intermarrying with people who didn't love God. They didn't love Yahweh. They sought other gods. God was displeased. And he grieved, just as we saw Ezra did. 
And so folks are so messed up about marriage. And because they're messed up about marriage, they're messed up about divorce. Because to begin to understand marriage, you must be committed to marrying only a believer starting there. So don't miss God's warning here. Do not marry. Do not date an unbeliever. Next, we need to understand something else, and they're all tied together, and that is this. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And so many, it seems, begin marriage with an exit strategy. Sign a prenuptial agreement. They're planning their exit. One day I might have to throw this thing aside, so I better get my ducks in a row just in case. So it's not really till death do us part, it's till maybe we might make this thing work. But I got it out. And so many begin marriage that way. But they don't understand something. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's never been God's ideal that people approach marriage with an exit strategy. And people are messed up about divorce because they're messed up about marriage. They don't see it as a covenant. You and I have never studied divorce in isolation because it's a marriage covenant. Divorce doesn't even come into the discussion until we talk about the nature of God's covenant. In verse 14 to 16 in Malachi, we get to this issue of this call to commitment. Because, because marriage is a covenant, this makes it serious. You say, well, why? Because covenant functions under divine authority every time. And that's what the Israelites had done. They had forsaken their covenant with God, this covenant relationship. And that covenant was under divine authority, God's divine authority. Marriage is a covenant. And it's under God's divine authority, which makes it very serious. You see, God puts marriage on a high shelf. He doesn't care what candidates think. God doesn't care what the polls say. God says, I place marriage here, not here. And I don't alter the definition of it just because other people want to. I put marriage here. It's a covenant between one man and one woman for life. That's marriage. That's God's ideal. That's God's heartbeat. And if you look at this interesting verse, Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? In other words, we've wept and we've brought offerings, and God, you're saying you're displeased with it. it why? Again, they keep asking this. So they're like challenging God, why? Why won't you accept it? And he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Do you realize what, on your wedding day, God heard your vows? Yeah, you saw visually people, but God was there, and he heard them. He took them seriously. Because marriage is a covenant, a covenant that is meant to be kept. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, and so he says to verse 15 and 16, take heed, that's the idea, be careful. To your spirit, speaking to your heart and your motives. So be careful of your heart and your motives so that you don't break faith with your wife. Now think about that, that's a pretty logical progression. Take heed to your heart. Take heed to your spirit, because if you don't, you're going to wind up breaking faith with your wife. If you're careless with your life, if you and I are careless with our life, our hearts begin to shrink. 
They become cold. And you know what suffers? Our relationships. Our relationship with God. Our relationship with our spouse. Our relationship with our children and our friends. And if you and I are careless with our marriage, our hearts will begin to shrink towards our spouse. And our relationships will suffer. And I know these next few moments especially are going to be very hard for some of you. But I pray you let God's word work right where you are today. Starting today, right? We're not going to be, we know what happened yesterday in some of your life and we can't change it. But today, start now as you and I look at God's covenant in more specific ways. The violation here, again, is in Malachi is one of violating God's plan. His principles of covenant, which are based upon his character. We go all the way back to beginning of the plan in Genesis 2. Verse 21 through 25. This is God's plan. This is God's design. It's good. Matter of fact, it's better than good. It's perfect. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and they shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I like what one speaker I once heard said uh, for verse 23, man looked at Eve and said, whoa, man. (laughs) And uh, maybe he did. Uh, But she shall be called woman. And there's principles of covenant already at the beginning when God designed it. The first principle of God's plan is severance. It refers to covenant, which results in the primary relationship, now moving from daddy and mommy to spouse. That's hard for some people, especially if you're really, really close with your folks. It's hard not to bring dad and mom into it. Well, dad doesn't do it that way. It's not the way mom did it. If you're like me, you make the mistake every now and then. So, well, mom used to cook it this way. That was never a really good thing to say. Um, I might wear it. Uh, so, but this is a principle. This brings a new commitment, a new priority. When you say I do at the altar, you're saying my main priority now is my spouse. They're my new commitment. I've severed ties as a priority relationship with my parents to this other person. It doesn't matter how mom and dad did it. There's now a new priority. There's a new commitment. It's a principle of covenant. It's called severance. But there's another principle emerges from here. It's one of permanence. In the seal of the vow, God joined. It's this idea of glued, of bonded you together with your spouse. There's a quick application here. Avoid doing anything that weakens permanence in your relationship. Avoid behaviors that attack covenant, that weaken the permanence in your life. This is one reason God hates divorce. Because before he can hate something, there must be something he loves. What is it he loves? He loves covenant marriage. He loves it. He designed it. He caused your marriage and desired your marriage to flourish and to grow 
not just to roll up your sleeves and endure it, but to flourish. And covenant marriage reflects his character. It provides the security in which his purposes can best be carried out. And if you're the only spouse working at it right now, keep working at it. Do what Romans says. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with your spouse. Work toward permanence. Marriage in principle is such a lifelong union that any breach of the marriage covenant may be labeled as an act of treachery, which according to Malachi, God hates. I went through a fast food place the other day, and you've probably done the same thing, and you pull up, and you're talking to the speaker, and, and you say, I'd like to order this, and, and they repeat it back, and that's it, and you go pick it up, and you drive off. And so basically, we go to fast food places, don't we? we? We drive up, we get what we want, and we leave. How many do that in marriage? They drive up to marriage, get what they want, and leave. It's never God's ideal. It's never been his plan. There's a principle of covenant, it's permanence. It requires you asking before you hit the altar. Not is this person someone I can live with for the rest of my life. That's the wrong question. The right question is, if this person never changes, will I and can I live with them for the rest of my life? That's a different question, isn't it? How many go into marriage thinking they'll change? Maybe then they'll become a Christian. Or I know they get angry now, but when we get married, that'll, that'll simmer down. Or I know they've compromised their integrity, but they'll grow, they'll mature. And so, so many head into marriage thinking, well, they're going to change, and all of a sudden they're disillusioned to realize they never did, and so what's not, that's not what I asked for. That's not what I signed up for. So I'm out of here. That's not covenant. Marriage is a covenant, and a covenant principle is one of permanence. There's another, another covenant principle we get from Genesis 2, and that is unity. They would become one flesh. It's one of the great purposes of marriage is oneness, not sameness. If you were the same, one of you wouldn't be needed. <laughs> and thank God for diversity because the strength of your marriage is not in your sameness, it's in your diversity. That's what makes it strong. Be grateful you're not the same. Don't fight it. But let's be honest, we do wish the other person saw things the way we do, right? Because sometimes we're like, well, that's the right way. And, and it might be right, but it might not be the only right way. And so embrace your variety. Don't fight it. Because there's a covenant principle. That's unity. It's a like-mindedness. It's a oneness of emotions, of purposes, of commitment. What are you doing to build your unity in your marriage relationship? What are you doing? Paul said to the Ephesian church, make every effort to build unity. And he was talking about the church. How much more in our marriages? Make every effort to build unity, to be oneness. Do you encourage your spouse? Do you serve them? Do you work together? Cindy and I were watching this show on HGTV, Home and Garden, and called Property Brothers. Maybe some of you caught it. And uh, it's interesting, these two brothers, and, and uh, they basically try to help families and couples find the perfect home for them. And, uh, and so this particular couple said, let's buy a cheaper house and fix it up. So the Property Brothers are there to help. 
Well, this couple didn't agree on anything. I mean, they didn't even try to agree on anything. Modern, she wants traditional. He wants mirrors. Don't ask me why. She wants no mirrors. He wants dark colors. She wants, I mean, totally opposite. They go into a house. She goes, I don't like this. And he's going to another one. I don't like this. Finally, he sits them down. He becomes counselor. He says, you got to work together. They took some steps. They compromised and began to work together. And I thought, man, alive. I mean, a couple had to go to this guy on property, brothers, to begin to learn to work together. I think that couple is learning this principle of covenant called unity. It's about working together, not fighting each other. There's another principle of covenant. It's one of intimacy. Oneness. Spiritual, emotional intimacy. Physical intimacy celebrates them. It doesn't replace them. That's why physical intimacy without spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, is shallow. It's hollow. Because physical intimacy celebrates those things. It doesn't replace it. So many, unfortunately, miss the whole point. It's a covenant principle of intimacy. In the sinless condition, Adam and Eve had no barriers between them. And to achieve intimacy, we need to feel safe in our marriages. We need to feel safe. It's to be real, to be honest, and not risk being shot or put down or compared. Because when you and I pursue intimacy, spiritually and emotionally and relationally, when we celebrate that physically, we're celebrating this principle Covenant principle of intimacy. You see, God loves covenant marriage. It's his design. And surrounded by the security of commitment to one another, this acceptance brought about by mutual love and respect and an undeniable unity of purpose. The result, there's joys of intimacy are not only present, but they flourish. It's this God loves. The covenant of marriage, the way it was meant to be. God loves this covenant. It illustrates the most blessed of all spiritual relationships, the union of a believer with Jesus Christ. And God hates divorce because it distorts that picture. And any frustration of that goal is what God hates. It's an object of his holy hatred when that picture is distorted. And for marriage to work, if it's to work, we must apply these covenant principles. And when there's true commitment to that, there's a real confidence. There's a real safety to work on relationships. There's a huge impact and security for our kids. Listen, if our kids don't see security in a home, they're going to find it in the arms of somebody else. Mom and dad, what you do has an impact on your children. Don't think it doesn't. And don't think that it's okay to split and think this won't affect the kids. You bet it will. That's what Malachi was getting at. It affects your offspring. He even brought that into it, as did Ezra. I find Ecclesiastes 5. We actually looked at a couple, the first couple of verses last week, and not ironically enough, verses 4 through 7, talk about something very specific and very important. Author of Ecclesiastes says, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. 
It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. I mean, we are surrounded by so many quote-unquote authorities who say, hey, starting a new fire is so much more exciting than stoking an old one. But what those authorities don't tell you is those fires that are quick and bright, they burn out really quick. But those fires that you've built for, for years and years and you continue to stoke, they burn hot. It's worth the investment. They're, those are the ones that will endure, but they won't tell you that. And some of you right now might be sitting here and you're flirting with the idea of saying, things in my house aren't so good. Things with my wife or my husband aren't so good. I think I might consider something else because it looks a little bit more exciting. But deep down, something's tugging at you. And it's telling you that's not right. And that's wrong. And that's dangerous. And that something dare not be ignored. It may well be the voice of God. I, I would encourage you to say it is. And that voice is strongly reminding you of these words, with love I take you, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't say if you make a vow, it says when you make a vow. There's, we're going to make vows in our life. Don't be careless with them, especially the vow of marriage. Because if you don't decide now, you'll deny later. When you and I talk about this covenant of marriage, if we don't put a line in the sand and say, no, I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm committed to you. And that love's not predicated on your behavior. It's predicated upon a love God's given me and my investment in this marriage covenant. I'm not going anywhere. And if we make that commitment now, we won't deny later. And you could say, well, I married the wrong person. I've had that way too many times. It was a mistake. But God says that doesn't wash. God never overlooks our decisions and never overlooks our vows. No amount of psychological therapy, positive thinking, selective reading of biblical texts, alternative concepts or mutual support and counsel from others can remove your responsibility to keep your vow, to keep your commitment, because marriage is a covenant. I appreciated the message, Bible, paraphrase of verse 15 and 16. God, not you, made marriage. And his spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God. That's what. So guard the spirit of your marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel army says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. Now you might be thinking, well, I, I haven't walked out of my spouse. I haven't, I haven't, I'm not into a relationship with another person outside my marriage. There's other ways to cheat, you know. You can do it on the computer. You can emotionally check out. Check in with some other person emotionally. There's other ways to cheat. Malachi calls you and I to a higher way of life. To value that marriage co covenant. And once again, as I read these even right now, God's way has word as a way of cutting through the fog, doesn't it? And it spurns, spurs action. 
And taking your marriage seriously, taking my marriage seriously, is taking God seriously. You dare not separate them because God certainly doesn't. What are some principles that enhance commitment? I need to start here. You know what? On my best day, I could never be any, everything Cindy needs. There's a part of me that really would like to be, would try to be, but at my best, which is probably not that good anyways, only Jesus can meet all Cindy's needs. I realize that, and she realizes that. But I can strive to be the best husband I can be. You can strive to be the best spouse you can be. To enhance your commitment to that marriage covenant. How do we do that? I think there's some principles, and I think they're very, very significant. One is no conflict is unsolvable. None. And there could have been some serious hurt. I'm not minimizing that at all. Some serious hurt. And I have, I don't know how many times, had couples in my office where there's been physical abuse, and I had to say to the wife, we need to get you to a safe place before we can even talk about reconciliation. But never towards divorce. Always the prayer that this husband would find counseling, brokenness before God. And that that separation would always come back to a reconciliation. And I'm so glad there were so many wives especially, in this case, who said, you know what, God can change it. I'm just going to give him time. I'm going to let God work. There's no conflict unsolvable. Even if you're in a tough spot, don't run. Stick it out. And if you are in an abusive situation, please come see me. We need to get you to a safe place before anything else can happen. You staying there in that environment won't help. So please hear my heart when I say that. No conflict is unsolvable. And so many testify today that although there was great disagreement in several areas of their marriage, they're so glad they didn't run. They stuck it through. No conflict is unsolvable. Focus on being a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are peacemakers. Strive to be the peacemaker. And you say, well, the other person in my marriage isn't working hard at it. You be the one that works hard. Never too late to start doing what's right. You be the one that works hard. And trust God will use it. And number two, persistence pays off. You say, why is it better to work through than walk out? I'm going to give you a few reasons. One, it's the continual counsel of Scripture. Two, one's own growth in Christ is strengthened. If that's not enough, the testimony of Christ before the public is enhanced. Another reason, walking through and working on, working it out, forces needed changes. You see, to walk out means we take our same hang-ups into the next relationship. God uses us, doesn't he, as spouses to sharpen each other. Now, it doesn't always feel good. I haven't always appreciated things Cindy said, but she said them in the right spirit, and she was right. Probably the reverse is true, I guess, would guess. We need to grow, and marriage helps us grow, makes needed changes. Another reason persistence pays off is children in the family remain more secure, more stable, and more balanced. And they too can learn to work through the difficulties. They too can learn not to quit. 
but to fight for their marriage. And I wonder this morning if you'll fight for your marriage. And I wonder this morning if you're a teenager and now those decisions and those steps are ahead of you, I wonder right now if you'll fight to stay pure and I wonder if you'll fight to do it God's way starting now. I wonder if you do that. God wants to know if you're going to do that. God wants to hear that commitment. Chuck Swindoll, who I really appreciate and respect as a pastor, speaks pretty clearly when he says, despite all appearances, divorce is not normal and it's not neutral, nor is it the promised easy way out. It's destructive, its consequences will injure generations. You see, persistence pays off big time, big time. There's a third principle that helps us. God defends your unselfish commitment. Please don't ever forget that, especially when it seems like your spouse is not reciprocating. Especially when it seems like the spouse is making no effort. God defends your unselfish commitment. Others may walk out, but he'll honor your commitment to the marriage covenant. He sees your efforts. He'll bless you for it. He'll honor you for it. You need to know that. It matters when you continue to commit, your, commit yourself and sacrifice for the sake of your marriage. God defends that. And ultimately, isn't it true when all said and done, commitment glorifies God? Ultimately, that's the reason we were created, to bring glory to God. And your commitment, my commitment to the marriage covenant, that pleases God. Make that your goal in your life and your marriage to please God. Honoring and committing to the covenant of marriage is pleasing to God. And when we commit to honoring His covenant, you and I love what God loves. Because God loves that marriage covenant. Robertson McQuillan, one-time Columbia Bible College president, resigned. And in his resignation letter, he explained why. And it wasn't travel and it wasn't all the speaking engagement. It could have been. It wasn't that he, he resigned to write a memoir. He could have done that for sure. He did it because of his wife who needed him because she had Alzheimer's. And I want to read part of his resignation letter. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. She's in advanced stages of Alzheimer. And up to now I've been able to carry out the ever-growing needs in my leadership roles at CBC, which is the college. Recently, it's become apparent Muriel has become contented when I am present and hardly ever when I'm away. And it's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. And then she's full of anger when she cannot find me. So it is clear to me she needs me full time. And he concludes his letter this way. Perhaps it will help you to understand that the decision I make today, I made 42 years ago. When I promised to care for Mariel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word and integrity, that this has something to do with it, but so does fairness. You see, she has cared for me all these years and has done so sacrificially. And if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be able to repay the debt. Duty can be grim and stoic, 
But there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence, her warm love, the glimpses of the wit I used to relish, her persistence in face of difficulty. I do not have to care for her. You see, I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. My brothers and sisters, that's commitment. That's what God loves. Let's pray. Lord, for those who sit here this morning who are married, each and every day, I think we all face the question, maybe we don't ask it audibly, but we wonder, are we doing right by our marriage? Are we helping or hurting? And I hope we begin to take seriously this covenant. And maybe some here this morning have never even really thought of their marriage in terms of what it really is, a covenant before God. Maybe some of us in this room have taken it carelessly. We've treated our wives or our husbands as just persons who exist in our home. Not gifts entrusted to us. Lord, we begin to forsake our vows. Begin to forsake the wife of our youth or the husband of our youth. Lord, for those in this room who sit under this teaching of your word this morning who feel a deep conviction, I pray they would not leave it in their chair, but would bring it before the cross. And find the forgiveness and the cleansing and the hope we also desperately need, God. Lord, it's been my prayer throughout this week for my brothers and sisters who glance back in their journey of life and have experienced divorce. And I know this has got to be hard for them. I pray not so much, Lord, that they'd forget the life lessons. Those are valuable. But I pray that where they're at now, they would be able to focus at. To live out these principles now. And to not allow the chains of the past to hinder them from living out their marriage covenant here, should they be remarried. And Lord, I dare not forget those who sit in this room who aren't married yet who may be someday. Lord, they face the decision day in and day out whether they'll live pure before you. Maybe some God have compromised that. And this morning as they sit, they need to take that to the cross and I pray they would find forgiveness and hope for the future. God, help our children at a young age to commit to doing it your way. Help us as parents to steer them and to not fudge and not compromise on the standards you call us to and you call us to parent our children towards. Lord, what would be great? What would be awesome in your sight is that every person in this room would look at this covenant called marriage And look at this Christian life that you call us to commit to and begin to take it seriously, knowing you take it seriously.
Lord, just yielding ourselves to your spirit day in and day out so that you, our great God, would be honored and would be pleased and would be glorified. And we know none of this is possible without your power that works within us. And so, Jesus, it's only right we pray this in your name. Amen.